God's word comes to us this morning from 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 10. If I'm not mistaken, I believe Pastor Jacob wanted to preach from chapter 3 today, but then Pastor Sam stole his passage, and so he had to shift. He had to go to plan B, so he's choosing chapter 1. <clears throat> Unless he was joking, but that's what he, he was sharing with his staff. This is God's word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. I don't know how to start this uh, with that. It is true. <laughs> I was planning on preaching First John chapter 3 last week, but uh, by God's mercy, I, I do think that Pastor Sam did preach a better sermon than what I was going to preach. So it is, it is by the Spirit's doing, and we are thankful that God does graciously work in all of his servants. Uh, but as Pastor Sam spoke on God being love. And out of his love, how we ought to love one another, I, I do want to take us back to the beginning of 1 John to see the other theme that the Apostle John likes to focus on, which is God being light. So God is love, so you love one another as you are loved by him. But today, God is light, and so live, walk in the light as you are called by him. We do, not, uh, we do know that you know, it says 1 John in our Bibles, and we can say with certainty and confidence that this was written by the Apostle John, because throughout the church history with John's disciple Polycarp and other early church fathers, uh, that, that they have testified this is the writing of John. And in this first letter of John, who's an apostle and an elder of the church, he writes to a beloved church of Christ as it is dealing with the issues of people falling away and leaving the faith, 
as he's dealing with the issues of people no longer believing that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Savior of the world, and, and assures them there is real eternal life that we have in Jesus, so stand firm in the faith. He also gives many encouraging, wonderful encouragements to Christians who are struggling with the assurance of salvation. I, I find that 1 John is a wonderful portion of the Bible for us to meditate should you be one who's struggling with the assurance that God has saved people by grace. Because through it, he offers fruit and signs of, of knowing how you can be certain that God has truly saved you and that you yourselves are walking in the light. So let's uh, go into the word this morning, and, and I hope and pray that you all will be encouraged by the word today and that, that we would strive by his grace to walk continually according to his word. And Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us here to, to hear and to be nourished by you. And we pray that you would open our minds and hearts to receive understanding and the motivation, the desire to live out in obedience. May, may our salvation be, be sure as, as the life that we live reflecting the, the mercy and the grace we have received to be a blessing to the, the communities and the nations before us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. When you hear me, a preacher, say the word fellowship, what usually comes to your mind? Because when I'm in a church setting and a preacher says fellowship, my mind immediately goes to J.R. Tolkien's work, The Lord of the Rings. Because first, the, the first book of the trilogy is called Fellowship of the Ring, and second, because pastors just love referencing the Lord of the Rings. And so in church settings in particular, when I hear the, fellowship, the word fellowship, I think the Lord of the Rings. And, and it's not a bad thing to think about when we think about fellowship. We, we see that if, if, you, if you read the books or saw the movies, uh, it, it's company of nine individuals sharing the same mission to destroy the one ring to rule them all and consisted of various different species. There were four hobbits, two men, an elf, a dwarf, and an astari. In case you didn't know what an astari is, that's Gandalf the Grey. You like my nerdy knowledge of Tolkien? Um, if you're impressed, don't be. I have not read a single book by Tolkien. I just Googled it in preparation for this sermon. Uh, but even in the movies, uh, you see, as the fellowship is formed, you eventually see who truly belong to the fellowship, as inner desires and motivations were revealed and cracks were formed within the company. Of course, when we think about fellowship in the church, it's more than having the same mission. The word fellowship implies closeness and intimacy. It's being in a community, a group of companions, being extremely generous toward one another, sharing and being united with each other. As we have heard in the book of Acts, we saw that the early church devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers. They devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers. And we saw one of the ways that showed their devotion to each other was their willingness to sell even their own possessions to provide for the need of the community. Fellowship to the church of Christ, to the early church, and it ought to be the same today, Fellowship of believers must not be a side hustle or a hobby. The level of devotion that we see in the early church tells us that this was a great priority to them because being in that fellowship shaped what they did 
and what they did validated where they belonged. It was an important identity marker to the early church, as it is to us, that we are Christians. We are the church of Christ. And as the church of Christ, as we gather together, it shapes in what we do, and what we do here and outside validates where we really belong. As John writes to the church who is struggling with oppositions, false teachings, and the weary hope of wondering if Jesus really is going to come back to make everything better, he tells them, he reminds them who they are united to. To the people who are struggling, who are wondering if this faith is real or if it's worth persevering, who's confused because of the exodus of individuals leaving and false teachings and contradicting words coming, the solution that this apostle had for the people is, remember who you are united to. He begins by telling them that you are with God. That us mere human beings are not just joined with other fellow men, but us mere human beings are also joined with God in fellowship. And so in our passage today, we see three things about this fellowship. Number one, this fellowship that we have with God is grounded in history. Number two, this fellowship we have with God is evident in practice. And number three, this fellowship we have with God is preserved in forgiveness and cleansing. So this fellowship that we have with God, it is grounded in history, it is uh, evident in practice, and it is preserved in forgiveness and cleansing. So John begins this letter like the way he begins the gospel, in the beginning. And as John spoke of the word in the gospel of John, he he talked about the word as the the divine self-expression that is responsible for creating everything that has been created. And he says this divine expression became flesh, and it is Jesus. The very work that Jesus had done on earth is the very work of God. The very words that Jesus spoke on earth were the very words of God. This Jesus whom John and the other apostles have seen with their eyes, heard with their ears, touched with their hands, is none other than the creator God who stands to be greater than the entire universe. The very person that they spent studying and learning under was the one true God incarnate. The one where the entire creation is under him came down into a planet that is smaller than a speck of dust compared to the entire galaxy resided and joined in fellowship with other men whom he created. And with him there is eternal life. Jesus came to give life by giving up his own life and coming coming back from the dead in three days. The first century Christians, they made a lot of big claims stating that not just one person, but there were hundreds of witnesses who saw Jesus get crucified And they saw him alive after after the crucifixion. They even dared people to go, if you don't believe my words, there are more than 500 people who you can talk to. Go and ask them what they have seen. This is a unique challenge that no other major religions could have made. When When you think about all the major religions and cults, it often is a single person having a private dream, encounter, or experience and telling everyone what they had seen or heard. Now, it's going to be very hard to discredit the experience of one person. I can't discredit what you have dreamt. I can't discredit what you have experienced. 
And as hard as it is to discredit the experience of a single person, it's also very hard to prove their claims because it was only by a single witness. Yet with Christianity, we see even in the Gospels that Jesus died a very public death. His death was also confirmed by the letter of Pontius Pilate saying, this Jesus of Galilee has been crucified and is a letter that was sent to Caesar. Jesus also made a very public appearance for 40 days after he resurrected from the grave. It's not like that the grave was simply empty and people thought, where is this guy? Only the disciples have seen to met him. No, we see that even in the scriptures that he appeared to more than 500 people after he resurrected. Now, if this was false, it would have been very easy to discredit. It is very easy to discredit a lie when hundreds of people are involved. Stories will not match. There will be holes in the plot. Yet not a single person who were examined, tortured, and persecuted, who claimed to have witnessed the resurrected Jesus, could say that it was a lie. They simply could not deny what they have seen. This man walked. We've seen him do miraculous, magical things. He was really crucified by the Romans. And then we saw him living again three days after, talking with people, eating with with, with people. We just cannot deny what we have seen. And so if the claims of Christianity are truly false, it shouldn't have lasted for 21 centuries. It would have been demolished right from the beginning as it claimed that there were hundreds of witnesses who saw not only his death, but also him living again after after his death. And then the apostles and those associated with the apostles started writing the accounts of Jesus, which were then hand-copied, and those were copied, and those were copied. Now, some people might say, well, Christianity was a powerhouse. They had the ability to manipulate and decide what was going to be in the Bible to change the minds of the people in society. But understand back then, especially in the early days of the church, Christianity was not a powerhouse whatsoever. There was no single group of people who determined what should be Bible. In fact, what what ended up happening is just houses and churches started receiving these copies of copies, and they started making copies, sending it out to other people so that they can go and spread the news, and those people made copies, and copies and copies were made. And then one day when they decided, you know what, we should really have a canon of what Scripture is, they collected all these manuscripts that were copies of copies and copies, and realized they were all saying the same message. That's a miraculous thing that God has done to give us the Bible that we have. There was no single controlling group that determined what should be written in the Bible, and yet when all these manuscripts came together, we see that the the Christians of the early 1st and 2nd centuries professed the very same things that we profess today in the 21st century. We even have some of these copies today in museums, some as early as 2nd century AD, when Christianity was officially an illegal religion in then still powerful Roman Empire. John's telling us, to those who are struggling and to those who are weary, and, um, and he's reminding us today that what we profess, what we hold onto is grounded in history. It happened whether you wanted it to or not. It happened whether you claim to believe it or not, that this man walked, lived, died, and came back to life in three days. So everything that he said 
should have a great importance to all of us here today. God, as we know, came into our space and time. The eternal being came into this temporal place and made known to us redemption, salvation, eternal life with him through the Son. What we profess, what we hold on to is not someone's imagination or audacious claim without any grounds. Someone who claimed to be the savior of the world was killed on the Roman cross, came back to life in three days, was physically taken up into heaven with the promise that he's going to come back and he's going to make everything better. If you and I hear this proclamation that were made by the apostles and we believe in this proclamation, John says that we are in fellowship with those very individuals. We're in fellowship with the centuries of saints who have gone before us. And so when we see them in glory, when we see the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, when we see Polycarp, other church fathers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, whoever it may be, it's not going to be like a first encounter between strangers. But it's going to be more like a reunion among friends because we have been in fellowship with them all along through the things that they profess and the things that we believe. Not only that, if we hold on to this historic proclamation, then we have fellowship with God. There is closeness and intimacy with this creator. There's the opportunity to experience his extreme generosity that we can be united to him, cared by him, loved by him. God becomes our loving father. He becomes our gracious friend. He becomes our close helper in time of need. But how do you know that you are really in fellowship with God? The fellowship that we have with God is grounded in history, but how do we know? It is evident in practice. How you live really shows what you believe. You can make all sorts of professions that that sound right and true, but the evidence of your belief will be in your thoughts, in your desire, and in your conduct. John simply calls this life of genuine belief as walking in the light. Because God is light, you must walk in the light if you are in God. It's, it's simply to say, walk in accordance to his commandments. Live in obedience if you truly believe who God is. So walk in the light is to simply walk with God. Spend time with him. Listen to him. Being married for 10 years now, I think I can confidently say, uh, I'm sure it, took me, it didn't take me 10 years to really say this, but, but I, think, I think my wife knows me well. She has, whether she wanted to or not, have studied my behavior and can know when something is out of place. Um, whether it's the, the words that I use or the way I use them or, the, or the, the way I move my body, she understands that something is out of place. And what she has often noticed is that I pick up on certain mannerisms when I interact or hang out with someone for a while. Uh, I have thought about reenacting some of these mannerisms, but for the fear of needlessly offending someone, I decided to refrain. But what's funny is when she tells me, hey, you got that from so-and-so, I'm completely oblivious. I had no idea. I would talk with a certain tone or implement different physical movements and even slight movements. And my wife would say to me, who did you get that from? Who did you get that from? I've seen that somewhere. It's not from you. Who did you get that from? And I honestly have no idea what she's saying. I would respond, I don't know what you're talking about. This is 100% Jacob original. 
I came up with this. This is how I've always been. And she said, no, no, you got that from someone. And she knows that when I hang out with someone long enough, I start to mimic certain things from them. Uh, There's a level of imitation. And by that imitation, my wife can guess who I've been spending time with. If you're spending a lot of time with God, you'll start to imitate him and mimic him in his speech, in his movements. And perhaps others will pick up on that and wonder, who has that person been spending time with? In this letter, John tells us what walking in the light looks like. It's very simple. He says, love one another and hold to the firm profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. What does it look like to walk in the light? You love one another and hold to the very profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, it's not an exhaustive list. It's a summary, but it is a very good and challenging summary. Because you know, and I know that you know, you know that I know that loving people is really hard. And loving certain people feels near impossible. But see what John says in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And this is where it gets a little peculiar. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I found that last phrase to be interesting, and I wonder for a while, reading that phrase over and over again, what does the sin-cleansing blood of Jesus have to do with people being in fellowship with one another? And upon praying and meditating, looking to commentaries, I realize it's because fellowship as believers is truly possible because our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That we can be in a setting of intimacy and union and companionship and community because our sins have been cleansed. When we gather together, I wonder how many of us in this room ask, how can these people want to be friends with me? Do they not know the type of person that I am? How can these people want me in their community? I think the problem that we often see in our society and and Sometimes it is evident even in the church, where instead of people wondering, how is it that these people are calling me to be with them, we say, why should I be with these people? Don't they know who I am? I'm better than that. See, if you're in the light, you are exposed to everything that you have done. This is one of the reasons why people don't want to come to God. This is one of the reasons why they don't want Jesus as their Savior, because what requires of them to receive Jesus and be obedient to Christ is for, ha- for, for all of their sins to be exposed before God, before themselves, and perhaps even before others. Jesus said in John 3.19, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. We don't want to go to God because it means I have to see who I really am. I have to see the the wicked things that I have done, that I have thought, that I have desired, the things that would put me to shame, and I don't want to experience that. But to those in the light, we see what we are. We see what we truly are. We are sinful. We can confess and talk about the things that are in our minds, in our hearts, and the things that we do. 
that, yes, at times would put us to shame. But to those who are in the light, while there is this moment of grief and sorrow because of our sinfulness, there's this amazement to know that we can be counted as one of God's own despite our failures and our sinfulness because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. This is what it's required for us to be in fellowship with one another, to look at others and think, how can I ever be accepted into this group? Do these people not know who I am? How can I ever be accepted by God? Does he not know who I am? And yet we see that this is possible because our sins have been cleansed by Jesus Christ. Friends, hold on to this proclamation. Because if you fail to understand who you really are and you merely profess that you have fellowship with God and people, you will be like one of those who will say, we have no sin. You may say with your mouth that you're a sinner and you may confess that freely, but you don't really believe in the weight of that statement. You will in fact feel like you are high on a holy hill even though you may be inside a pit. You'll be like Adam who has disobeyed God. That's the sound of disobedience. Who has disobeyed God and instead of repenting and asking for forgiveness, he says it's her fault. You'll be like Cain who murders his, his brother and when God says what happened to your brother, he says I have no idea where he is and feeling no remorse for the wrong that he has done. See, what is troubling is some of us, at times in our sinfulness, can feel like we are being righteous. God, Jesus even told his disciples that some of you will be persecuted and even put to death. And those who persecute you and put you to death will think that they're offering service to God. For people who do not walk in the light... They will call what is good evil and what is evil good. Just examine the things that are happening in this world and the things that people are angry about or the things that people celebrate in our society. And you can see that this is true. When we believers understand that is wicked, that is evil, that the world seems to celebrate it. For us who are in the light, walking in the light, we are in fellowship with God that is grounded in history and that is evident in our practice. And the fellowship that we have with God is preserved in forgiveness and cleansing. Which brings us to the last point of the sermon. See, a single act of sin against God is worthy of eternal condemnation. Unfortunately for you and I, we have committed more than one. We have committed many and more than we can count. Yet what we see in the gospel, the light that has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ, is that the single act of Jesus has redeemed us and reconciled us to God for all eternity. And the reason why we can have continual fellowship with God is because we are forever forgiven by the single act of Christ. Here's a statement in, in verse 9, which also serves as an invitation to those who are in the dark, to those who are so afraid of their sins and their wrongdoings to be exposed. There's an invitation that is sent out to you. You can come to the light if you confess your sins. But confess your sins freely because when you confess them before God, you will not be met with rejection, but you will be met with acceptance. Freely come and confess your sins. Let light shine in the darkness. Get out of the dark and come to the light because when you come to God in confession, 
You will not be rejected, but you will be accepted. This is also a sign to those who profess to be Christians. How is it that you can be assured that you are walking in the light? You are confessing when you have sinned. What is one assurance that you are truly a believer and walking in the light? You are confessing when you have sinned. Confession of our sins reveals that we truly need the Savior. But to not confess them is to say to God, we have not sinned. John tells us that if that is your mentality, if that is your attitude, then the word of God is not in you. There is no evidence of regeneration because you do not recognize your sinfulness, nor do you confess them. In our confession, we know that God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. And this is why, though confession is hard, it also leads to great joy because it reminds us that we have been forgiven and we have been cleansed. God has promised us in Jesus that we will be forgiven and cleansed if we turn to the Son because His Son has paid the punishment for our sins. As a result, all is right with God through Jesus And we are made clean as our unrighteousness is washed away and we are clothed with his righteousness. Just as our fellowship with God is preserved in forgiving and cleansing, or in forgiveness and cleansing, our fellowship with one another will be preserved through forgiving and seeing our brothers and sisters restored from sin. James said, one of the early church leaders and brother of Jesus, he said, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We say all the time that the church is a place for sinners, for those who are sick. How many of us really believe that? And I think we really show that we believe it when people confess our sins to us and we aim to treat, to restore, than to ridicule and shame. And so, friends, I I hope that as as a body of Christ, in the offenses that we have received or the offenses that we may have done to others, that we may learn to confess our sins to one another. Because in that act, there is this promise that there is forgiveness and there is healing. That we would be so bold because we know the joy of forgiveness and cleansing that is present with God. In conclusion, Paul, or I'm sorry, the Apostle John, uh, he tells us, another reason of why he writes these things. He says in verse 4, we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. As believers, we have the call to go out and proclaim. Proclaim the light which you have seen. Proclaim the redemption which you have received. Tell people about Jesus and the forgiveness that is found in him. Tell people that, yes, your wickedness and your sinfulness will be exposed, but there is forgiveness and cleansing through that. And as a result, your joy as a proclaimer will be complete. One of the commentators that I I looked at said, um, John has a heart of a pastor which cannot be completely happy so long as some of those for whom he feels responsible are not experiencing the full blessings of the gospel. That for us as Christians, there's a sense where our joy is hindered because we see that the very people whom we love are not experiencing the very joy which we have received in Christ. So go and proclaim and let the world know of this Christ who is the Savior of the world. 
one who came to live the perfect life that we could never live and took our place to die for us on the cross, rising again in three days to tell people everything that I've said and promised is true and welcome true, and he will one day return to make everything better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather as a church, give us a greater and clear vision of who Jesus is. To know that we are in fellowship with this almighty, awesome God. And as a result, have this great, personal, intimate fellowship with one another. We thank you that you would call us to be your own. We thank you that you would call us to be in fellowship with you that is grounded in events that have happened And that by grace, we can live out the lives that you've called us to live with the very assurance that we are forgiven and no sin will ever again convict us to condemnation. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.